So we we uh, been doing a study. Uh, it's it's basically it's based on uh, J.I. Packer's book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, and uh, we're probably going to finish that up today. <laughs> um, we've been dealing with the last last week with. Uh, Questions that we should ask ourselves in evaluating uh, our evangelism techniques, uh, our uh, the letters we write to people, or uh, the emails we send to people in regard to people we're sharing the gospel with. Just evaluating uh, even uh, large group evangelistic uh, meetings or uh, small group gatherings in homes, that sort of thing, and. Uh, we left off last week with uh, the fourth question to ask, which is, we have to ask, is this way of presenting the gospel calculated to convey to people the application of the gospel? In other words, we don't want to just present information and leave it at that. There's, there's, it has to be applied to the people's lives, so we want to... They need, a person needs to see themselves as God sees them and understand the, the situation that they're in in relationship to God and that that requires a response. And we've talked about repentance and faith, but also the cost of following Christ as His disciple. And oftentimes we soft-sell that part. Uh, I, I mentioned... Um, Years, years ago, back in the 80s, uh, Willow Creek Community Church in Chicago that uh, was a huge mega church, and they, they had a what they call a seeker-sensitive service. And uh, that was designed for people to bring their non-Christian friends to, and it was a, sort of an evangelistic message. But there was no mention of the cost of following him was just this, you know, make a decision to uh, follow Christ, make a decision to trust in him for salvation. But then on Wednesday nights, they had what they called community, new community, I think it was called, and that was for believers. And so they were, then these new believers were encouraged to go to that, and that, and then in that service they'd present the cost. And it's sort of like a bait and switch type thing. It's like, wait a minute, you know, I didn't, I didn't sign up for this when I made my decision for Christ, you know. Uh, so that's the kind of thing we want to avoid, uh, sort of an easy believism type thing. The other... Uh, problem though is that we can leave them imagining that I mean if we emphasize if we emphasize the cost of following Jesus but don't emphasize actually trusting him for salvation as your savior you end up with good resolutionism which is it's like saying okay I just need to I just need to buck up and start following Christ and and do as much as I can for him and and try to be a good person, try to better myself, sort of like we do with New Year's resolutions, you know, good resolutions. I'm going to make this resolution and, and do better. Uh, Packer says that uh, oftentimes, if you turn a, he says, quote, if you turn a publican into a Pharisee, you make his condition worse, not better. 
So you don't want to just emphasize do, do, do without also the fact that you're trusting in the grace of God as your Savior. Five, we again we have to ask, is this way of presenting Christ calculated to the, convey the gospel truth in a manner that is appropriately serious? In other words, is it calculated to make people feel that they are indeed facing a matter of life and death before God? Now here's their situation. It's sort of like Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now you might not like the title of that, but... But he, he compares a person's situation to this, like a spider hanging just from a web above a fire. And it's just that, just that single thread is all that's keeping him from falling into that, into that fire. That do people understand, that's the, in, in essence, that's kind of the situation they're in when they haven't trusted in Christ yet. They're under the wrath of God. And... Uh, they don't know. No, none of us knows when, you know, when we, we're going to lose our lives. Uh, nobody did in that uh, parade a couple weeks ago, that Thanksgiving Day parade, when the guy ran his car down through the street and killed people. So, um, is it calculated to help a person feel the seriousness of their situation? and the greatness of their need, and the need of the grace of Christ. Uh, So, in essence, the principle here is that the best method of evangelism is the one which serves the gospel most completely. And we talked about what's involved in the gospel uh, earlier. Now, I want to turn to... uh, in essence, kind of where we started this study, we talked about divine sovereignty and human responsibility, and and uh, that it's that really the task of evangelism is a communicating a message from the Creator to a rebel mankind, and the message begins with information and ends with invitation. It concerns God's work of making. His Son, a perfect Savior for sinners. And the invitation is to call mankind generally to come to the Savior and find life. So we come to this question that, that we've uh, been dealing with, that we dealt with at the beginning. Uh, and that is, how is all this affected by our belief in the sovereignty of God? So... We saw earlier that uh, divine sovereignty is is one pair, one of a pair of truths, which form an, what was called an antinomy in biblical thinking. It's the idea that if we would be biblical in our outlook, we have to make room in our minds for two truths that are taught side by side. God is sovereign, and man is responsible. They're both there, they're both taught side by side, and in some cases the same verse. Um, So man's responsible for his actions, and God's sovereignty, God is sovereign in relationship to those same actions. So the Apostle Paul forces this antinomy on our minds by speaking of God's will. The term God's will, it's the Greek word thelema, God's will, in connection with both of these 
seemingly incompatible relations of the Creator to His human creatures in a single short epistle. And we've been studying that. We've been, Paul's been preaching on that epistle, Epistle of Ephesians. In the 5th and 6th chapter of Ephesians, Paul sees that he desires that his readers understand in, in chapter 5, verse 17, quote, what the will of the Lord is. Understand what the will of the Lord is. And in 6.6 6, he says, he speaks of doing the will of God from the heart. Now this is the will of God as lawgiver, as he has revealed uh, his will. And the, and the will of God is that man obey what he has revealed as his will. In the same sense, Paul writes to the Thessalonians in chapter 4, verse 3, he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. In the first chapter of Ephesians, however, Paul speaks of God as having chosen him and his fellow believers from before the world began. Quote, according to the purpose of his will. In verse 5. And he calls God's intention to sum up all things in Christ in the end of the world the mystery of God's will, the mystery of his will. And he speaks of God himself as, quote, him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, here in those passages, God's will is clearly his eternal purpose for destiny with his creatures. Um, it's God's will, sovereign will over the world. This is the will of God that actually is fulfilled in and through everything that happens. Even man's transgression of the law. So, theologians in the past have called this God's will of precept and his will of purpose. His will of precept is that which he has revealed. It's, it's, the, it's the law that, that we have written out where God has revealed it to us, his will, in that sense. As opposed to his purpose, which is largely secret. We don't know what God's, what God's intention will be, but God's in, will of purpose is that which will happen. He himself will, will do that. So it's, it's the distinction between God's law and God's plan. And the former tells, tells man what he should do and be. The latter settles what he will be. That's God's purpose set in before the world began. Both aspects of the will of God are facts Though how they're related in the mind of God is inscrutable to us. And that's why we call one of God's attributes is he is incomprehensible. Now our question is supposing that all these things do in fact happen under the direct command of God. And that God is already fixed in the future by his decree. He's fixed the future by his decree. and And he's resolved whom he will save, and whom not. How does this bear on our responsibility to share the good news? That's the question. So, 
The biblical answer can be stated in two propositions. One is negative and the other is positive. And the negative one is this. The sovereignty of God in grace does not affect anything that we have said about the nature and duty of evangelism. It doesn't affect that at all. The principle that operates here is is that the rule of our duty and the measure of our responsibility is God's revealed will. His will of precept. In other words, whatever the Scripture tells us that God wants us to do, we are to do. That's our responsibility. That's how we should operate our lives. Live by the light of His law, not by our guesses about what God's plan might be. Uh, In fact, Moses laid this out um, when he taught Israel the law and the threats and the promises of God. He says, quote, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us, that we may do all the words of the law. So you see what Moses is saying. He says, look, we don't know all that God thinks, all that God's going to do in the future, and we don't need to. It doesn't matter to us. That's, That's his responsibility. Our responsibility is to do what God has revealed to us. And so, it doesn't affect anything we've said about the nature of evangelism. God calls us to take the gospel to all people, to all nations. And that's our responsibility. So we can say, the belief that God is sovereign in grace does not affect the necessity of evangelism. Whatever we may believe about election, the fact remains that evangelism is necessary because no one can be saved without the gospel. Paul writes in Romans 10, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call upon Him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And no one will be saved that doesn't call on the name of the Lord. And certain things must happen before they can do this. As Paul goes on to write there in chapter 10, How then will they call on him of whom they have not believed? And how they will believe on him in whom they have never heard? And how can they hear without someone proclaiming or preaching to them? So God's way of saving sinners is to bring them to faith through bringing them into contact with the gospel. In other words, His people are the means that God uses to bring people to faith. He uses His people to bring the gospel to them. Therefore, evangelism is necessary. God sends us to act as vital links in the chain of His purposes for the salvation of His elect. In Jesus' parable in Matthew 22, 1 and following, He tells us that the way that the wedding was furnished with guests was through the action of the king's servants who went out as they were bidden into the highways and invited all who they found there. And hearing the invitation, the passers-by came. That, that's, that's God's method. Go out and tell people the gospel and bring them into uh, the fold. Second, the belief that God is sovereign in grace does not affect the urgency of evangelism. Again, whatever we may believe about election, the fact remains that people without Christ are lost 
and going to hell. Now, if you knew that a man was asleep, was asleep and a blazing fire was in his, going through his house, you'd think it a matter, a matter of urgency to try and wake this person up and get him out. And the world is full of people who are unaware. They're unaware that they're under the wrath of God. And so it's certainly a matter of urgency to share that. And we shouldn't be held back with the thought that, well, if they're not elect, they won't believe us, and I'll just have failed. Well, that's true. They, 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 they may not come to faith, but it's none of our business or should it make any difference to our action? Because, as Charles Spurgeon said, if I knew that everyone who was elect had a yellow stripe down their back, I'd just go around lifting up shirts. <laughs> then I'd know who to share the gospel with. But they don't. We don't know who the elect are. And it's not our... That's, that's God's purview, not ours. Ours is to share the gospel. It's always wrong to abstain from doing good for fear that it might not be appreciated. And sometimes it's not. The non-elect in this world are people, I mean, faceless people as far as we're concerned. I mean, we know that they exist, but we don't know and cannot know who they are. So it's futile to try to guess. The, the identity of the non-elect is one of those secret things of God that Moses talked about. Our responsibility as Christians is not to love the elect and them only, but to love our neighbor, irrespective of whether he or she is elect. Third, the belief that God is sovereign in grace does not affect the genuineness of the gospel invitation or the truth of the gospel promises. Again, whatever we may believe about election or even about the extent of the atonement, the fact remains that God in the gospel really does offer Christ and promise justification in life to whosoever will. Romans 10:13, who shall ever who whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The invitation is for sinners only, but for sinners universally, everywhere. It's not for a sinner of a certain type, reformed sinners or Arminian sinners, whose hearts have been prepared by some fixed minimum of sorrow for sin, as Piker says, but for sinners. Now, I mentioned... Uh, the gospel presented in our order of service in, in, in last week's in last week's uh, worship bulletin you have we have we confess our sins and last week it was uh, the Ten Commandments uh, in, from Exodus 20 the confession of our sins and so we're recognizing that we're sinful people and then there's the assurance of pardon and uh, this last week it was Psalm 103, verse 8. 
and 10 and 11, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and so on. So, why do those words bring assurance? Because they are God's words, you see. And they're all true. They are the essential gospel. Some fear that a doctrine of eternal election and reprobation involves the possibility that God will not receive some of those who desire to receive Him because they are not elect. But we saw that 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 just doesn't hold. That you don't find that in Scripture at all. Because the fact is, we'll we'll talk about the fact, but I I remember talking with a person about this and, and they used an illustration like, well, that's like... They, they think it's, it's out of God's character because it's like you have these people in a, in a life raft and they're out there yelling for help and Christ just goes out and says, well, I'll choose this one and this one and this one to save and leave the others. But that's not, that's not biblical. The fact of the matter is people who, don't, who do not have Christ, who are unregenerate, don't want him, they would reject the help. They would say, no, go ahead, I don't want you. Leave. So it's not, it's not even an option that somehow God is going to uh, not save a person because they're not elect. That's, that's, not, that's not what Scripture teaches as we'll see in a moment here. It's true that He has from all eternity chosen whom He will save, and it's true that Christ came specifically to save those whom the Father had given Him. But it's also true that Christ offers Himself freely to all men as their Savior and guarantees to bring them to glory everyone who trusts in Him. So, if everyone on the life raft said yes, to Jesus, he would save them. So, turn to, turn to John chapter 6. And, uh, just want to read uh, verses 37 to 40. This is Jesus speaking here, and he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So, we see Christ's saving mission defined in terms of the whole company of the elect whom He came specifically to save. That is, all that the Father has given me. And we see Christ's mission defined in terms of the whole company of lost mankind to whom He offers Himself without distinction and whom He will certainly save if they believe. The two truths stand side by side in these verses.
And that's where they belong. They belong together. They walk hand in hand. Neither throws doubt on the truth of the gospel or the truth of the other truth. And neither should fill our minds to to the exclusion of the other. Christ means what He says no less when He undertakes to save all who trust in Him than when He undertakes to save all whom the Father has given Him. So the invitations of Christ are of God. It's It's actually God inviting people to come. And it's genuine. And it should be pressed on the unconverted to respond that God is calling you, God is inviting you. Uh, Packer in his, in his book quotes John Owen uh, in one of his messages and how he's talking about Christ is inviting you to come to Him for life. Why will you die? Why will you not live? That's, that's, a, that's a genuine invitation. And it's just as genuine to the non-elect as it is to the elect. The elect. The fact of the matter is the, the elect will respond. In fact, it's guaranteed. As he says, all whom the Father has given me will come. Four, the belief that God is sovereign in grace does not affect the responsibility of the sinner. For his reaction to the gospel. So whatever we may believe about election, the fact remains that a man rejects Christ, thereby becomes the cause of his own condemnation. This is important. In other words, unbelief in the Bible is a guilty thing. And unbelievers cannot excuse themselves on the grounds that they were not elect. The unbeliever was really offered life in the gospel and could have had it. If he would, he and no one else but he, him is responsible for the fact that he rejected it. And most, and, 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 and now, really has to endure the consequences of rejecting it. Jesus says this in John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40. Speaking to the Jews, he says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And in John chapter 319 he says, And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light, because their works were evil. The Bible never says that sinners miss heaven because they're not elect, but because they neglect a great salvation. And because they will not repent and believe. God gives men what they choose, not what they do not choose. So, so much for the negative proposition. It doesn't change anything about what we said about evangelism. Two, the sovereignty of God in grace gives us our only hope of success. You know, far from thinking that evangelism is pointless if uh, God is sovereign... The sovereignty of God and grace is the only thing that prevents evangelism from being pointless because it creates the possibility, indeed the certainty, that evangelism will be fruitful. Those that the Father has given me will come to me. 
were it not for the grace of God, evangelism would be futile and useless. And why is that? Because of the spiritual inability of the person in sin. And this is, this is why, uh, this, this is, now we're getting into why some people in the life raft wouldn't want to be saved. Let Paul, the greatest of all evangelists, explain this to us. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 14. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now that that phrase, not able, is very important there. That is, he does not have the ability, he is not capable of understanding the things of God. In Romans 8, verse 7. What then shall we say? Oops, wrong. 8, chapter 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot. That's, an, that's, again, the same word there. Ude dunamai. Cannot, is not able to submit to the law of God. Incapable of it. And in verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those cannots are key to understanding this passage here. It speaks to a person without Christ's inability, spiritual inability to respond. He makes two distinct statements about fallen man in relation to God's truth, and the progression of thought is parallel in both cases. In the first, he asserts that unregenerate man's failure, as a matter of fact, see, his failure is a matter of fact. He's not saying this might be the case. This is the case. This is a fact. He does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. That's the first Corinthians passage. And he does not submit to God's law, Romans 8, 7. But then Paul goes on to interpret the first statement by the second to the effect that this failure is a necessity of nature. It's something that is certain and inevitable and universal and unalterable just because it is not in man to do otherwise than fail in this way. He is not able to understand the mind set on the flesh cannot submit to God's law. Man in Adam has a spiritual inability. And so it's, so to speak, instinctive of the person without Christ. It's instinctive to him to suppress, to evade, to deny God's truth, to shrug it off, shrug off God's authority, and to flout God's law. It's instinctive. It's a part of his nature. So when he hears the gospel, so when he hears the gospel, he disbelieves, disobeys, rejects it. 
Paul describes him actually as dead in transgressions and sins in Ephesians 2.1. Deaf to God's speech, blind to God's revelation. You know, if you talk to a corpse, you get no response. They're dead. I mean, it's... And so, and so it is a person without Christ. So there are two obstacles in the way of successful evangelism. First, man's natural and irresistible impulse to oppose God. But then there's another one in Ephesians 2. It's, it's spiritual forces of darkness. For he says, You were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's the second. See, that's the second, second obstacle there. That's working against Satan's schemes in keeping man from believing and obeying. If you read C.S. Lewis's uh, screw tape letters, you uh, where he sort of he sort of it's, a, it's a letters back and forth between the chief demon and his, and his lower demon that he's trying to train to keep people from believing. And it kind of gives some insight into how, how Satan operates in a person to keep them from the truth. So what does this mean for evangelism? Well, again, regarded as a, as a human enterprise, evangelism is a hopeless task because a person cannot believe. But God does what man can't do. God works His Spirit through His Word into the hearts of sinful people to bring them to repentance of faith. Paul says in Philippians 1.29, For He has been granted to you for the sake of Christ to believe in Him. Ephesians 2.8, For by the grace of God you, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Faith is a gift that God gives. And so is repentance. Speaking before the Jewish council in Acts chapter 5, quote, the God of our fathers raised whom you killed by hanging him on a tree, God exalted at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And, And when the Jerusalem church heard how Peter had been sent to evangelize Cornelius and how Cornelius came to faith, they said, quote, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. You and I cannot make sinners repent and believe. Only God can do that. And He works by His Holy Spirit in doing that. And that's what Paul is talking about when he refers to God's calling. God's calling. Older theologians call it effectual calling. It's, it's, it's like this. As the gospel is being proclaimed, the Spirit of God works in that person. He, he brings about new birth, actually. Regeneration. So that the blinders are taken off, the plugs are taken out of the ears, and the person can see the truth, hear the truth, and through that grants repentance and faith. That's, that happens at the moment of regeneration. When the lights come on all of a sudden, 
And you see the truth. You see yourself as God sees you and you see how hopeless that situation is. And you call upon Christ. The effectual call of God. And that's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. It's when the gospel, it's in the midst of the sharing of the gospel, God works. And brings that about. The Westminster Confession describes it this way, enlightening the minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by His almighty power determining them to that which is good and effectively drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by His grace. In other words, the inability is taken away, and now they want to come. They come of their own will now because their will has been changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus himself taught the universal necessity of this calling by the Word and Spirit in John 6:44, where he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In the next verse, he taught the universal efficacy of the gospel. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. It's, it's going to be effective because God is doing it. Now, just to finish up here, what effects should this confidence and certainty have upon our attitude when evangelizing? Well, at least three. First, it should make us bold. It should keep us from being daunted when we find, as we often do, that people's first reaction to the gospel is to shrug it off or even, even look at it in contempt. So we can be bold because no heart is too hard for the grace of God. I mean, think of the Apostle Paul himself. He was a bitter enemy of Christ in the gospel. But Christ laid his hand on Paul, and Paul was broken down and born again. He can make his truth triumphant to the conversion of seemingly the most hardened of sinners. Two, this confidence should make us patient. This is a problem for us because we live in an age of speed. (laughs) And the internet has made it even worse. Because, you know, the faster we get used to the faster speed, and then all of a sudden, after we've had it for a while, it seems slow, and we want something faster. And we're just, and it makes us impatient. And we're, and so, we, we want to share the gospel, we want to see it happen right now. When it doesn't happen that way. It's all in God's timing, and, it, and it's dependent upon our relationship with the person, and how that relationship is progressing. We have to, we have to, See where God is, where God is acting in their life, and go and and flow with that. Not our, you know, predetermined time frame, but be patient. And actually, the fact that God is sovereign should help us in that. Finally, this confidence should make us prayerful. 
We said at the beginning uh, that prayer is a confessing of our own impotence, our own dependence upon God, our own need for God in our life, our helplessness and dependence. We, We totally depend upon God for making our witness effective. And so... That ought, to, that ought to drive us to prayer. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3, Pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. Paul knew that it was that unless God continued to work in both him and in those he's witnessing to, nothing will happen. So again, there are in fact, two sides of the evangelistic commission. It is a commission not only to proclaim, but also to pray. And in prayer, not only to talking to people about God, but talking to God about people. Asking God to open that person's heart. Uh, to give them eyes to see and ears to hear. And it's 10.15 right now. So let's pray. Lord God, thank you for, uh, for this book by J.I. Packer, for its truth, for uh, the things we've learned. Lord, help us be uh, urgent to see the need for sharing the gospel, that people are lost until they hear and respond to the gospel. Help us to be wise in our witnessing, Lord. Give us compassion for the lost, Father. Help us by your Spirit to develop positive relationships with unbelievers. And use, Lord, the way we live and respond to them as an, as an opening to be heard. That we could present your truth, Lord, and win people to Christ. For your glory, we ask. Amen.